Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all his chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring back word to me, that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold frankincense, and myrrh. Then, being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Thus far the reading of God's Word. This is the Word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. We thank You, God, for Your Word, which is truth and which sanctifies us. As we consider this story from Matthew 2, open our hearts and our minds to see the glory of King Jesus and to worship Him in response. We ask for your help in doing this in the name of Jesus and by the power of His Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. The Gospel of Matthew gives two full chapters to the origins of Jesus. The genealogies at the beginning of Matthew 1 give his human origins. Jesus is the son of Abraham, the son of David. The story in the last part of Matthew 1, which Bobby preached on a couple of weeks ago, describes the divine origins of Jesus. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He wasn't begotten by a man. He didn't have a physical human father. Jesus is the eternally begotten Son of God. And so the opening of the New Testament, the opening chapter of the New Testament, puts forth both the humanity and the full divinity of Christ. The newborn King of the Jews is fully God in human flesh. 
He's simultaneously the son of Abraham and the eternally begotten son of God. And the last verse in Matthew 1 contains this idea, or both ideas. Look at Matthew 1.25. It says, And Joseph did not know Mary. That means he did not have sexual relations with Mary till she had brought forth her firstborn son. And he, Joseph, called his name Jesus. So Mary's virginity, not just at the conception, but all the way through the pregnancy, highlights that Jesus' father is God. But then at the end of the verse, we're told that Joseph named Jesus and thereby became his adoptive human father. Jesus was begotten of, the, of God the Father in eternity and he was adopted by Joseph in history. And Matthew 2, 1 says, Now after Jesus, or when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, or in its rising, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he inquired them of them where the Christ was to be born. So this flows uh, right after chapter 1. The, real, the chapter break there between chapter 1 and chapter 2 should not fool us. We just, this is continuing the story. Not a lot of time has gone by. And verse 2 announces who this story is about. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? He's the central figure. Matthew 2 is about a child who is the king of the Jews from birth. And notice that these wise men aren't looking for the future king. They're not, they didn't say, who is he who will become the king of the Jews? No, they're looking for the one who has been recently born king of the Jews. And verse and verse 4 clarifies what they mean by king of the Jews. If you look at verse 4, you see that Herod knows exactly what they mean, what they're talking about. Verse 4 says that when he gathered together all, this, all his scholars, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. So he, he does an interpretation there that's accurate. Where's the Messiah to be born? You see, for nearly 40 years... Herod the Great had been called the king of the Jews. But no one ever called Herod the Great the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Christ. Those are all synonyms. The word Christ or Messiah refers to the long-awaited, God-anointed ruler who would overcome all other rule and bring history to its climactic end as all the prophets in the old testament envisioned the messiah would establish the kingdom of god on earth and he would never die he would never lose his throne so when the wise men showed up asking where the newborn jewish king was herod got the message he read between the lines these guys weren't just looking for a mere human successor to herod No, they were searching for the final king, 
the king to end all kings. They were looking for the Messiah, and this was a threat to Herod. It's also clear from the text that Herod hadn't been anticipating the Messiah, the coming of the Christ. Many in Israel were. Uh, Over in Luke 2, Luke tells us about Simeon and Anna, those two pious Old Covenant believers who were waiting for, eagerly anticipating the coming of the Lord's Christ, it says, and the redemption and the consolation of God's people. They were looking in faith to the Christ and His coming. But Herod didn't even know the simple Scriptures about where the Messiah was to be born. We see no faith in the so-called King of the Jews. He had to ask the court scholars about it, so he gathered them and he said, you know, where's the Messiah going to be born? Where's he to be born? And verse 5, so they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet. Then in verse 6, they quote from Micah 5. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So this tells us where the Messiah would be born, in Bethlehem. But if we keep reading in Micah 5, and we're always supposed to do that, by the way, when when a New Testament author quotes a text, a verse, what what we need to do is go back because they're, they're sending us back and they want us to see the context. It's kind of like a footnote to something bigger. Because they can't quote the whole thing. If we go back and read in Micah 5, we find out who the Messiah is. And we find out how extensive His kingdom will be. So do that. Turn back a few pages to Micah chapter 5. Micah is the seventh book from the end of the Old Testament. It's right after Jonah, right before Nahum. It's right in the middle of the minor prophets there. We're at the end of the Old Testament. Turn to Micah 5, and we're going to read verses 2 to 5. Okay, so Matthew doesn't give us all of these verses, but we need to read them. This is the passage that Herod's priests and scribes turned to when Herod asked them about where the Messiah was to be born. And this passage tells us important information about the Christ child, about the Messiah. Micah 5, 2 says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel. And listen to this part. Whose whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. So let's stop there for a minute. The Messiah that Micah has in mind will not just come into being in the womb of his mother, The end of verse 2 says that his goings forth are from of old, from everlasting, eternally. Or as John puts it in his gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Let's keep reading in Micah 5, verses 3 and 4. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time that she who is in labor has given birth. 
So he's from of old. He's eternal. But he's also fully man. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel. And he shall stand and feed his flock. He's going to be the shepherd as Matthew says. In the strength of the Lord. And in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall abide for now. He shall be great to the ends of the earth. The Messiah that Micah has in mind will not just be the king of the Jews. He will be great to the ends of the earth, the end of verse 4 says in Micah 5. The eternal God-man Messiah will rule over all nations. And so it's appropriate for these wise men to come and worship Jesus, to bow down before Him as you would bow down before the eternal God. He's not just the king of the Jews. He's also the king of the whole earth. He reigns over Jews and Gentiles alike. And he's not just the king of the earth. He's also the God of heaven and earth. Whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Okay, you can turn back to Matthew 2 now. And you'll notice that Matthew doesn't tell us about the Jewish shepherds who came also to worship the infant Jesus. Luke tells us about the Jewish shepherds, but Matthew doesn't. Why did, why did he leave that out? Well, because Matthew's gospel has a different theological emphasis, and Matthew's gospel portrays Jesus as the universal Messiah For all nations. One of the main points in Matthew is that Jesus is to be worshipped not by the Jews only, but also by every ethnic group on the earth. So the first worshippers of Jesus in Matthew's gospel are these Gentile wise men from the east. Maybe they were from Babylon. We don't know for sure. And I, and I don't think that we're supposed to speculate about where they were from or what their background was. In my opinion, that's a pointless exercise in futility. And what's important is that they were Eastern Gentiles. Not, we don't know what their vocation was, what their religious background, anything like that. But we do know that they were Eastern Gentiles. They were outsiders. They were unclean. They were not of Israel. They were not Jews. They were not descendants of Abraham. And they represent all the Gentiles that Jesus came to save. You remember the last words of Jesus in Matthew's Gospel. I say them every week. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus says. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. It literally says, go and make disciples of all the Gentiles. We're to take the gospel to all people because Jesus is already the reigning king of the entire earth. And someday the whole earth will be worshiping him. Let's reread verses 7 to 12. Matthew 2, starting in verse 7, Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time, when the star appeared. 
And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you found him, bring back word to me so that I can come and worship him also. Verse 9, when they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east, or in its rising, went before them till it came and stood over where the child was. When they saw the star... They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then, being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. We need to think about the mystery of this star for a few minutes, and you're going to have to put your thinking cap on for this one. You have to let me do this every once in a while, what I'm about to do. The famous Christmas carol speaks of this light when it says, O star of wonder, star of night, star of royal beauty bright, westward leading, still proceeding, guide us to thy perfect light. During Advent and Christmas, the star of Bethlehem is a ubiquitous biblical symbol. There are a lot of other symbols that are not biblical, but this is the one biblical symbol that's everywhere. You see it all over the place in Christmas cards, in nativity sets, on Christmas trees, in advertisements. The star has become the signature symbol for Christmas. But what was this star, this mysterious star? Is it possible for us to know its identity should we spend time trying to figure it out or is it like the my opinion of the wise men we shouldn't well many don't think that we should spend much time on the star either and here's what one preacher theologian says about the star there are numerous effort efforts to explain it in terms of conjunctions of planets or comets or supernovas or miraculous lights, we just don't know. And I want to exhort you not to become preoccupied with developing theories that are only tentative in the end and have very little spiritual significance. And then he expands on his point. I'm reading this because it's good advice in general. He expands on the point, he says, people who are exercised and preoccupied with such things as how the star worked and how the Red Sea split and how the manna fell and how Jonah survived the fish and how the moon turns to blood are generally people who have what I call a mentality for the marginal. You do not see in them a deep cherishing of the central of the great central things of the gospel, the holiness of God, the ugliness of sin, the helplessness of man, the death of Christ, justification by faith alone, the sanctifying work of the Spirit, the glory of Christ's return and final judgment. They always seem to be taking you down a sidetrack with a new article or new tape or book. There is little centered rejoicing. End quote. Now, in general, this is, this is a wonderful exhortation. That's why I read it. We should avoid becoming obsessed with the marginal or the unimportant. But I don't actually think that the identity of the star is unimportant. I'm going to try to make that case here in the next few minutes. In fact, I think Matthew 
in a sense, goes out of his way to identify the star for us. So what is the Bethlehem star? Well, there's a long list, as this quote mentions, a long list of theories about the star. Probably the most widely known theory for the last few hundred years is that it was a conjunction of planets that appeared in the years 7 and 6 B.C., In the last few decades, this theory has become less popular as other astronomical theories have come along to challenge it. Some say it was a comet. Others say it was a supernova. One recent theory that's gained a lot of traction says that it was a conjunction of planets that appeared in the years 3 and 2 B.C. But all of the astronomical theories have insurmountable problems. And I'm going to make a case that we should just stick with the Bible. The first problem is that there's no way that the stars and planets could ever provide the kind of detailed information or navigation that the Magi received from this star. There's no astronomical scenario, there's no arrangement of the planets, the heavenly bodies, that could convince Gentiles from the east that the Jewish king had been born and that they needed to go and worship him and lavish gifts on him. If the, if, think about it this way. If the planets and stars in the sky could produce such a clear indication of the Messiah's birth, then Herod and his officials, who also were familiar with astronomy, they would have known about this birth as well. But verse 7 indicates that they knew nothing about this star. They had seen nothing. They had no idea. Herod had to ask his wise men when the star had appeared because he and his people didn't know. His scholars were clueless. And apparently no one in Jerusalem knew anything about this star. You see, they didn't know about the star because it was not an astronomical phenomenon. The second problem with the astronomical theories is in verse 9. So look in verse 9, it says, When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in its rising or in the east went before them and came and stood over where the child was. So this star is doing things that no planet or star or conjunction of planets and stars can do. First, it appears to them more than once over the course of months in the east and then in Jerusalem. And Matthew says that it was the same star, the same phenomenon each time. Second, and this is really the death blow to all the astronomy-based explanations, Matthew says that this star led them to a pretty specific location. Verse 9 says the star went before them and stood over the place where Jesus was. No star or conjunction of planets, no sky activity could have led the wise men to the small village of Bethlehem, and then stood over the place where Jesus was. So what is this star? It can't be a natural phenomenon. It has to be something supernatural. It has to be able to inform these eastern Gentiles that the Jewish king had been born. It also has to be able to lead the wise men from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, which is only about five or six miles to the place where Jesus is, so that they know where to go once they get to Bethlehem. It also has to be something that would cause these wise men to experience deep 
overflowing joy. Because look at verse 10. It says that when they saw the star, this is before they saw Christ, when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. The joy there in verse 10 is a fourfold joy. It's four layers deep. They didn't just rejoice, they rejoiced with joy. And they didn't just rejoice with great joy, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. The star also has to be a phenomenon that Herod and his scholars couldn't see. They didn't know anything about it. They hadn't seen it when it appeared to the wise men earlier. And there's no indication that they saw it as it led the wise men to Bethlehem and stood over the place where Jesus was. So it had to be a supernatural light. But can we know specifically, more specifically, what it was? Well, I think Matthew reveals the identity of of the star in the second half of verse 9 that we just read. Behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the child was. Those two verbs. Went before them and stood over Jesus. I want you to think. Can you think of a supernatural light in the Old Testament that went before and stood over multiple times? What about the glory of the Lord, the Shekinah, as it's sometimes called, that led Israel through the desert. It was a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. I want you to listen to how Moses describes the glory of the Lord that went before the Israelites and stood over them and stood over the tabernacle especially. Don't, don't turn on this one, just listen. Exodus thirteen twenty one. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. Exodus 33, 9. The pillar of cloud descended and stood over the door of the tabernacle. Numbers 12, 5. Then the Lord came down in the pillar of cloud and stood over the door of the tabernacle. Deuteronomy 31, 15. Now the Lord appeared in the tabernacle in a pillar of cloud, and the pillar of cloud stood over the door or the entrance of the tabernacle. Numbers 14, 14 puts both of these ideas together, these verbs together. O Lord, your cloud stands over them and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. So when Matthew says in verse 9 that this supernatural light went before the wise men and stood over Christ, he's identifying it as the glory of the Lord, the Shekinah, the presence of God. The presence of Yahweh that went before Israel in the wilderness and stood over them and stood over the temple's entrance at various times. Bobby read from the first six chapters of Isaiah 60 and every biblical scholar agrees that Isaiah 60, the fulfillment of those first six verses, is Matthew 2, the story that we're that I'm preaching on right now. And in that story, it talks about you know, the, the people coming on camels, the kings bringing gifts, gold and frankincense. And two times in that passage, it refers to the glory of the Lord. The glory of Yahweh will come and it'll be, it'll be over the people and you will see it, it says. 
And so if the fulfillment of that passage, as everyone agrees, is Matthew 2, 1 to 12, then it makes sense to understand that glory of the Lord is not just an abstract concept of God's glory. No, the glory of the Lord in Isaiah 60 is the Shekinah, the presence of God that filled the tabernacle and filled the temple and led Israel, stood over them, a visible, glorious reality. That's what Matthew is trying to say to us. He's teaching us how to read the Bible, how to read our Old Testaments um, biblically and theologically. But Matthew's telling us more, and we're, we're starting to get closer to the payoff here. Matthew is also letting us know that a prophecy in Ezekiel is being fulfilled in this event. In Ezekiel 9, 10, and 11, the prophet Ezekiel sees a vision of the glory of the Lord, the Shekinah, leaving the temple and heading east. It moves from the Holy of Holies and into the outer court in Ezekiel 10. And by the end of Ezekiel 11, where is it? It's on the mountain that's east of Jerusalem. So it's heading east. Ezekiel 11.23, And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city of Jerusalem and stood over the mountain that is on the east side of the city. So God's glory is moving out. The cloud is heading east. And what's going on here is that the glory of the Lord is going into exile ahead of God's people. He's going to Babylon before Israel. Israel's sin caused God to leave and go east, and unfaithful Israel is not far behind. Ezekiel talks about this future exile that's coming upon the people of God. But later in Ezekiel's prophecy, in chapter 43, the prophet envisions a time in the distant future when the glory of the Lord would return from the east and move into a new temple, a different temple. It's the new covenant temple. So turn with me in your Bibles to Ezekiel, chapter 43. The book of Ezekiel is about two-thirds of the way into your Bible. It's right before Daniel and right after Jeremiah and Lamentations. So Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. And turn to Ezekiel, chapter 43. We're going to look at the first five verses. Now remember the setting. Remember the story. Remember where we are in Ezekiel's prophecy. The glory of the Lord is no longer in the temple. Ezekiel's seen it leave back in chapters 10 and 11, headed east into exile. And here in Ezekiel 43, the prophet sees the vision of that glory cloud returning to the future new covenant temple. So let's read Ezekiel 43, 1 to 5. Then he led me to the gate. This is in the vision. The gate facing east. Okay, You entered the temple from the east going westward. And behold, the glory, of the, Lord, uh, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. And the vision I saw was, like, was just like the vision that I had seen when he came to destroy the city, and just like the vision that I had seen by the Kibar Canal. And I fell on my face. As the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east, 
the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And this is the temple that Ezekiel sees in his vision, the new covenant temple. So when do you think this prophecy was fulfilled? When did the glory of the Lord return from the east and fill the new covenant temple? Well, some Christians believe that this prophecy has not yet been fulfilled. They, they're still waiting for the Jews to rebuild a physical temple in Jerusalem so that Ezekiel 43 can be fulfilled finally. And these Christians call themselves dispensationalists. That's uh, the theological nomenclature. But that's never going to happen. We're not waiting for a new physical temple in Jerusalem. The new covenant temple in Ezekiel 40 to 47 is not a temple made by human hands. The new covenant temple is Jesus, the Christ. And this prophecy from Ezekiel 43, 1 to 5, about God's glory returning from the east and filling the new covenant temple was fulfilled in Matthew 2. Jesus is the new covenant temple. And the star that led the wise men from the east all the way to where Jesus was is the glory of the Lord. Matthew 2 is when God's glory returned from exile. In the Old Testament, the glory of the Lord stands over the tabernacle primarily. In Matthew 2, it stands over Jesus Christ, who is the new tabernacle, the new temple, the new dwelling place of God. The fullness of God dwells in Him bodily. In the Old Testament, the glory of the Lord goes before Israel. In Matthew 2, it goes before Gentiles from the east. And so even as an infant, Jesus is fulfilling all kinds of Old Testament prophecies. Now, you might be wondering why Matthew would call the glory of the Lord a star. Isn't that a problem in this perspective? He calls it a star because the glory of the Lord is typically accompanied by an angel of the Lord. In the wilderness, the angel of the Lord and the glory of the Lord are essentially one and the same. They go together. We see them both going before Israel. And in the Old Testament, Angels are identified with stars. For example, Job 38.7 says that creation, the morning stars sang together. The morning stars he's talking about are the angels. Angels are living stars, as it were. In the Old Testament, the phrase, the heavenly host, can refer either to angels or stars. And so the star in Matthew 2 is a combination of the glory of the Lord and the angel of the Lord which always go together. It's a combination that we see all the time in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. This combination of God's glory plus an angel is exactly what the shepherds saw when they were watching their flock at night just outside of Bethlehem, Luke 2.8. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, look, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord, the Shekinah, shone all around them. That's the star. That's the light. 
this combination of the glory of the Lord and an angel of the Lord is the star that appeared to the wise men in the east that gave them revelation about Jesus, about the Christ, and it led them all the way to Bethlehem. The Gentile wise men and the Jewish shepherds saw the same star. It's possible that the Gentiles from the east saw the star hovering near Bethlehem at the same time that the Jewish Jewish shepherds saw it. It appears that King Jesus started bringing Jews and Gentiles together to worship Him even as a newborn. And the worship of Christ is what this passage is all about. The worship of Christ is what this passage from Matthew 2 is all about. In these first 12 verses of Matthew 2, we see several responses to the newborn king. Herod responded to Christ with hostility. The priests and scribes responded with indifference. Who cares? They knew where he was born, but they weren't interested in going there themselves to worship him. And the people in Jerusalem are troubled right along with Herod. Only the wise men responded to Jesus appropriately with worship by prostrating themselves, by falling down before him. Matthew 2.11 says that the wise men came into the house. When they came into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and they fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. How are you responding to King Jesus? You can respond to Jesus with Herod, with hostility, or with indifference like Herod's scholars, or with worship like these Gentile wise men from the East. Consider the sacrifices that these wise men made just to behold Jesus and to worship Him. They had to travel for weeks, maybe months. And they had to persist in finding the newborn king and deal with people who wanted Him dead. Are you willing to make sacrifices to worship Jesus? Are you as persistent as these wise men? How persistent are you in making church a priority? How persistent are you in making it to church every Sunday, every Lord's Day, to worship King Jesus? The same Jesus that the wise men worshipped. How committed are you to worshipping the Christ? Commenting on Matthew 2.11, J.C. Ryle said, We read of no greater faith than this, in the whole volume of the Bible. These Gentiles died to themselves. They gave of themselves. And they fell on their faces to worship King Jesus. All by God's grace, of course. While Herod was raging and plotting in vain, the wise men were kissing the sun. 
in the coming year, make sure that you are worshiping Jesus with his people every Lord's Day. Also, every other day of the week, you should be living as a living sacrifice. But make it a priority to worship the Lord Jesus on the Lord's Day, his day, with his people. Try to be 52 for 52 next year. It's not actually that hard. Some of you here do it most years. But if you're at a place in life where it seems hard, then follow the example of these wise men. Be persistent. Make the necessary sacrifices. Make it your one goal of next year to get to where God's people are worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ on His day. Is Jesus your King? Do you listen to Him? Do you follow Him? Do you obey Him? And die to yourself and give yourself to Him? Is His grace working you in you to that end? Or are you indifferent to Him? I doubt many of you here, if you've made it here today, I doubt many of you are hostile to Jesus. Maybe some of you are. But I wonder if some of you are indifferent to him. Make sure that that's not you. When Jesus was on trial before Pontius Pilate, that Roman governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Jesus is saying here what it means to be the king of the Jews, the reason he came into the world, was to go to the cross. His kingdom is not like any other kingdom and it's not established like any other kingdom. The kingdom of the king of the Jews is established through sacrifice, through death. His death on the cross. That's why he came for this purpose. I have come into the world, he says. And in dying on that cross, he makes it possible for you and for me to reign with Him, and to become a part of that temple. As Bobby said in the opening words before the worship service, we are now a part of the temple. Jesus is the temple, and He unites us to Him and makes us living stones. He's the cornerstone, but we're living stones because we're connected to, united to King Jesus. And that's all possible because He established His kingdom in his death on the cross. And so this leaves us all with a choice. We all have a question to answer. Who is the king of the Jews? Who is your king? Whose voice are you going to heed? Will you be indifferent to Jesus? Will you be hostile? Or during the short time that you have on this earth, in this life, Will you present your body to Jesus as a living sacrifice? Will you bow 
low? Will you humble yourself with whatever gifts you have and worship King Jesus every day of your life? Let's pray and ask for his help in doing this. Father, thank you for sending Jesus into the world. Lord Jesus, thank you for fulfilling the purpose for which your Father sent you. And Holy Spirit, thank you for uniting us to King Jesus, for making us living stones in his temple, and for enabling us to reign with him by faith. Work in us a deeper faith, a deeper desire to honor our King, to worship Him, to worship Him with His people on the Lord's day and to worship Him in our daily lives and everything that we do. Help us. Give us the grace that we need to do this. In Jesus' name, amen.